Good evening and welcome to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am your host, Osgood Underby, at your rather humble service. For this evening's story, I thought we might take a trip to the Canadian Maritimes to escape the heat of summer in the city. Take in some cool sea breezes and those quaint accents. Our tour guide for this evening will be Andrew McCurdy. Mr. McCurdy has been reading and writing science fiction ever since he saw Charlton Heston kneeling in the surf, cursing the half-buried Statue of Liberty. He recently relocated from teaching college in a large city to rural Nova Scotia, where he hopes to start writing in earnest. He has deigned this evening to read in his native accent. Dad's Balloon by Andrew McCurdy The sun had barely broken the horizon when the airship was first spotted, hovering about 200 feet out over the harbor. An airship of any sort, especially in an area as remote as ours, is sure to cause a stir, which explains why word of the odd-looking vessel spread throughout the county like gossip at the bingo hall. There are a great many people in my town who spend their days fretting about nothing, and here, fortunate deliver them something genuine to get excited about. A silver object, shaped like a rugby ball, hanging motionless above the water. By noon, two-thirds of the townsfolk were milling about the docks, pointing and gawking, while the other third were out in their dories trying to angle for a better view. I've talked to a fair few now, but none had seen it arrive, my wife Ghislaine said to me, a child balanced on each hip and another two clinging to her apron strings. There's some that are claiming it popped into the sky right out of nowhere. But my opinion is it comes sometime during the dark night, when there weren't nobody about. Ghislaine and I had gathered the kids and trucked it into town about an hour earlier, having hitched a ride on the back of my Uncle Fred's milk wagon. Like most folks, we found ourselves drawn to the docks, fascinated by the strange silver object floating overhead. That don't look like no airship, opined old Ike Idelson, who stood nearby smoking a pipe of sour tobacco. The old man took a sip from a bottle that rightfully ought to have been concealed in a brown paper bag. His eyes darted about, scanning the crowd for anyone of interest. I was up to the city myself just last spring, he continued. Sky's full of airships in those parts, once he hit anywhere from Gable Brook straight through to Shabakto. My point is, I ain't seen not one single airship that ever looked like that. The old man was so adamant he practically spat out each word as he used the stem of his pipe to point to the suspicious object. Come now, Ike. Ghislaine chastised the old man, then glared at me like I ought to do the same. You're scaring the children. What else could it be if not an airship? Could be them aliens from the moon, spoke up a woman sitting on a crate, picking at a greasy newspaper filled with even greasier fried fish. You can read all about them on the covers of the magazines Agnes Donahue keeps at the back of the pharmacy. Uh, those are penny dreadfuls, I pointed out. Yet the woman looked at me like I was the one that made no sense. To be honest, however, the more I saw the strange airship, the more I began to notice certain peculiarities that needed explaining. For example, I couldn't see any basket or cabin. It was just this great, big, roundish object, 
like a giant silver lemon, so smooth and polished you could actually see the green and blue landscape of the harbor reflected on its underside. How do you figure you get into the damn thing, I asked, using my hand to shield my eyes from the bright sunshine as I peered up at the airship. Maybe there's a door on top, said Ghislaine, starting to rock from leg to leg in an effort to shush the kid on her left hip, who was all fidgety, and the one on her right hip that was right colicky. That would explain as to why we don't see nothing on the sides or bottom. If Ghislaine was correct, and the door was on top, then what we were looking at was all ship, no envelope or bag to hold the gas. I can't quite figure out how that airship is managing to stay aloft, I said as much to myself as anyone. What you need is a hot air balloon, said Ike Idelson in his offhand manner. Then you could fly up yourself and get a real good look. As it happened, I had a balloon, something my father had built the year I turned 15. He intended to make me a kite, but due to a clerical error, the textile mail up in Shibakto sent him 200 yards of rubberized balloon silk, rather than just the two he'd paid for. By rights, he should have sent the extra back, but instead he wrote some aeronaut he knew in the valley, who found him the plans for a hot air balloon. It took pretty much the summer to build her, but we were persistent, and soon enough we had her ready. What a beauty she turned out to be once we had her done and fired. To see her fully inflated was to gaze upon the very promise of adventure. The silk was pure white, but the rubberized coating reflected the sunlight in such a way as to give it a silvery sheen. She flew well, too. Dad and I would tether her to the shore, then take short rides out over the harbor. But after a summer, we got bored with it, and maybe only bothered to fire her up two or three times after that. She's been collecting dust in the barn for quite some time. I guess it's been at least a decade since we last took the balloon out, so you can bet Grandma's last dollar she'd be in need of some maintenance. In order to bring Dad's balloon to the docks, however, I first needed to find a way home, so it was a piece of luck that I spotted an old chum of mine by the name of Phil Gardner, standing across the lane with his wife Betty and their six kids. Phil! I called out, giving him a wave to catch his attention. You got your wagon handy? Give us a lift out to the farm, would you? I got Dad's old balloon stored in the barn. If we get a move on, we might be able to fly her up and take a closer look at that airship before sundown. By mid-afternoon, we were back at the docks, working with a concerted effort to get Dad's old balloon ready. And it wasn't just me and Phil. There must have been about two or three hundred people milling about, any one of them willing to check a line or tighten a rope. A little further along the way, folks were setting up grills to cook their fish, while a group of fiddlers played up-tempo favorites for those inclined to dance a jig or clap along. Someone was even handing out bags of popping corn and candied apples. It turned out to be a regular street festival. Despite my earlier concerns, Dad's balloon was still in pretty good shape. I'd been worried about the mildew in the barn, but it didn't seem to have gotten into the fabric any. We checked all the seams, added a little sealant here and there. The ropes were good and the basket sound. I remembered to start heating coals early in the afternoon so as to have a better than good and hot for when they were needed. Even with all the preparations, I was fretting over the time we were tanking, anxious about whether we were going to make it before sundown or not. Dad's balloon requires nearly three hours to inflate. In the end, all my fretting was for naught. By about 8.30, the balloon was fired up, and while the sky had gone from a blue to a deepening salmon hue, 
there was still plenty of light left to make the flight. Once it became clear the balloon would fly, things slowed somewhat on account of all the bloody kids passed from us, every one of them begging to be the first to go for a ride. But I stressed to them that me and Phil needed to go up first to make sure it was safe enough for everyone else. There would be plenty of time in the morning to take them all up for a peek. But what about us? said Ghislaine, hands firmly planted on her hips. Maybe we want to see the airship too, meaning her, Betty, and some of the other girls. Why is it just you and Phil going up? That basket can hold a half dozen. Sure, I said. Like I told the kids, we can take you for a ride first thing in the morning. But right now, someone's got to stay here and mind the little ones. I could tell as soon as I finished speaking, I'd said something to get her right dandered up. She turned to Betty, and I saw that both of them had that red blotchy look about their necks that means it's best to make yourself scarce before the loud voice discussing starts. With all life's petty details to consume my thoughts, I'd forgotten just how much fun Dad's balloon could be. But as Phil and I floated up above the harbor, I was reminded of the happy simplicity of those bygone days. The fellas on the dock let the tether out slow so we wouldn't overshoot the mark. The closer we got, the more peculiar the airship seemed. It was a half-decent size, about 60 feet from end to end, and perhaps 35 feet about the middle. When we were hovering above it, I noticed straight off that Ghislaine had been right. There was a door situated on the very top. It was right flush with the hull, except for a small wheel that could be spun either to open or seal the hatchway. The boys on the docks held us as steady as they could, easing the line out slow until it pressed taut against the side of the airship. It had been a tricky maneuver that required some measure of concentration. The next step was to climb down to the airship before the balloon became dislodged. There was no time for hesitation. With the hull being so smooth, and nothing protruding upon which to catch a line, it wouldn't take much of a gust to blow us free. There was a little rope ladder in the basket that Phil and I lowered over the edge. I then tied a rope around my belt so Phil could haul me back up if I slipped up. I'm not ashamed to say, my heart pounded for all the fear I felt as Phil helped me over the side of the basket. With deliberate care, I began climbing down the ladder. When I took that first step on the top of the airship, I noticed, to my relief, it was solid, like the deck of a ship. I have to admit to feeling quite overwhelmed with nervousness about my situation. I didn't like being that high up, and the shiny hull beneath me seemed to fall away too sharply at the sides. I dropped to my hands and knees, crawled to the door, and reached for the wheel in the middle of the hatch. When it turned... I breathed a little easier. I had been worried it might have been locked. After one full rotation, there was a series of clicks, followed by a big hiss as the hatch opened upward of its own power. I peered inside, but it was dimmer within the vessel than without. I could see rungs leading down to a large open space, but it was impossible with the poor light to discern many details. Before I did anything else, I took the rope from my belt and tied it to the top rung so the balloon was secured to the airship. Once that was taken care of, Phil climbed down to join me on the deck. We best be quick, I said. Only have a few minutes of light left. The inside of the airship was dark, 
At first, I thought the only light was coming from the top hatch, but as our eyes adjusted to the dimness, we began to pick out an array of different colored glowing orbs along the perimeter of a large open room. The orbs must have been fueled by some sort of gas, even though I could see no evidence of a flame in any of them. As our eyes adjusted further, we could see the inside of the ship was all decorated with mahogany railings and plush carpets. Real posh type stuff, like you'd see in the fancier hotels up in Shibakdo. Phil and I were both soft-stepping as though we were in a library. It was dead silent inside the airship, which is why we both jumped at the unexpectedness of a voiced announcement. Telesville is in standby power mode. The speaker had a tinny-sounding voice that could have passed for either male or female. Thirty-two hours until the stabilization. The vessel will need to be reset. Please push the blinking red button to reset the ship. I looked over at Phil and could tell straight off he was feeling as rattled as I was. There was something so inhuman about that voice that it sent a chill right down my spine. Destabilization? Phil looked at me and raised his eyebrows. All I could do was shake my head and shrug my shoulders by way of a response. It was hard to localize the source of the voice, but it seemed to have come from somewhere across the room. It was only then that I noticed the man, dressed in nothing but green long johns and a matching undershirt, slumped in a chair over at the far end of the room. Phil must have noticed him at the same time, because we both rushed to the man's side, but his skin already had that wax and grayness about it. Poor sod's dead, said Phil. He spoke so quiet I barely heard him. Yeah, it doesn't look like he's been dead all that long, I said, wondering if Phil noticed the nervous strain in my voice. The vessel is in standby power mode. Thirty-two hours until hull destabilization. The vessel will need to be reset. The tinny voice announced again. Please push the blinking red button to reset the ship. I glanced at the ring of glowing orbs that ran the perimeter of the room. I noticed a few were blinking, but only one was both blinking and red. I wonder what happens if we don't push that button, I said to Phil, and didn't that damn inhuman voice answer me? If not reset, this vessel will lose power. Without power, it cannot remain aloft. I'll be damned, said Phil, the ship answered you. What happens if we do push the button? I asked, raising my voice and slowing my speech as though the ship were hard of hearing. The vessel's controls will be restored. You will be able to set course for any destination you so desire. The ship replied. Come again? asked Phil. This vessel is guided by over a thousand maps detailing every region of the globe. Simply state the name of your destination and the vessel will take you there. Why would we want to go anywhere besides where we're already at, said Phil, with a nervous laugh. Ain't nowhere better than here. The vessel is in standby power mode, the tinny voice repeated. Thirty-two hours until hull destabilization. The vessel will need to be reset. I was sorely tempted to push that button, but we had thirty-two hours to make a decision. No need to stress ourselves by rushing matters. Besides... By now, it had become too dark for us to really see much inside. Come on, I said to Phil. It's too late to worry about this tonight. We can figure out what to do in the morning. 
what, what about the dead guy? Phil asked, glancing over at the body slumped in the chair. It seems cruel, I know, but let's leave him be for now. I spoke calmly, but the truth of the matter was I was feeling increasingly uncomfortable about being in the airship and needed to get out, plain and simple. Phil nodded. Ain't like he's going anywhere, I suppose. Come on. I started back to the ladder. I want to run a line from this airship down to the docks so it's secure. It was well after dark before Phil and I finished anchoring Dad's balloon to a grassy area behind the docks. We'd run a line down from the airship as we descended, and even though it didn't seem likely that it would be flying off during the night, we secured it to be safe. I had half a mind to deflate the balloon, then fire it up again in the morning, but after consulting with some of the town bigwigs, we decided to keep the burner going. The mayor and some of his advisors wanted to lift first thing in the morning to see the airship and its dead pilot for themselves. Wouldn't hardly be worth the time deflating the balloon, only to start filling it again right away. Easier to keep a fire burning than to light a cold one. It would mean the lot of us spending the night in town, so we could keep the burner stoked. But Phil and Betty had plenty of blankets, so the kids could all sleep in the back of the wagon. Once Ghislaine and Betty got the kids settled away, they joined Phil and me for some tea. We lit a little campfire to heat the kettle, then told them about the amazing things we'd seen up above. A talking airship that says it can fly you anywhere? Remarked Betty with a look of wonder spreading across her face. How exciting. Where would you go, Ghislaine? You mean where would I go first? Ghislaine laughed as she spoke, yet even in the dim light of the moon, I hadn't missed that look of wistfulness that seemed to dampen her countenance. Listen, I said, feeling I had to clarify matters before this talk got out of hand and people's hopes got dashed. No one is going anywhere. If we push that button, and I stress the word if, it's to keep the damn thing from falling into the harbor, understand? God's country's where we're already at, Phil added by way of support. Ain't no need to see anywhere else. But we could go anywhere in the world, Ghislaine protested, sounding more than a little bent out of shape. Phil and I were figuring we might be able to make a few dollars using Dad's balloon to send people up for a look, I said. Folks would come from all over to see that airship, Phil nodded, and I imagine they'd pay a penny or two for the thrill. Phil's right, I said, but these are all matters we can attend to in the morning. For now, all we need to worry about is keeping that burner hot so we can go back up at dawn. Phil and I will take the first shift. Ghislaine, you and Betty go join the kids in the back of the wagon. You'll need some sleep. We'll rouse you in about three hours to take over stoking the burner. I'm not ashamed to admit that all the excitement of the day had knocked the wind right out of my sails. By about three in the morning, I could endure the waking world not a minute more. Phil and I checked everything over one final time then shook the women awake so they could take over their shift watching the balloon and attending the burner. They grumbled at first. Can't say I fault them for that. I would have done the same being roused so early. Ghislaine's blanket was still warm when I wrapped it around myself and crawled into the back of Phil's wagon with the kids. Perhaps I'm just getting old, but I couldn't remember ever being so knackered in my life. I hadn't even realized I'd fallen asleep when I was being awoken by one hell of a commotion. I was confused at first. Not even sure where I was until I sat up and looked about. 
Phil was the one that was trying to rise me. Come quick, buddy, he called out, smacking the side of the wagon with a stick. Ghislaine and Betty took the damn balloon up to the airship. I jumped right up when I heard those words, hopped over the side of the wagon, and ran with them down to the docks. Even though the sun hadn't yet risen, the sky had lightened enough in the east that I could see straight away Dad's plume was already aloft, tethered to the airship 200 feet above. The women stole your balloon, I see, observed old Ike Idelson in that slow, ingratiating way he has of speaking. He was standing in the same place he'd been yesterday, smoking his pipe. They ran a loop around the rope you boys tied to the airship last night, used it as a guide to keep on course. That way they didn't need no help from anyone on the ground. I looked up at the airship in utter disbelief. It had never even occurred to me that Ghislaine was capable of such independent action. You don't reckon they're going to push the blinking red button, do you? Phil asked. A moment later, as if in answer to his question, the airship vanished, just winked out as though it had never been there. Dad's balloon, no longer tethered to anything substantial, caught a gust and started drifting toward the mouth of the harbor. The three of us, me, Phil, and old Ike Idelson, stood there, watching it for quite some time, until it was just a little dot against the pale blue of the sky. Thank you, Andrew. Now back to the basement with you. Say hello to Kevin while you're down there. I should like to remind the hopeful writers amongst our listeners that our submission status is still open. We are particularly looking for short stories of interest to the steampunk community. And for the months of July and August, we are putting an extra call out for Christmas stories to produce for December. For details on how to contribute, visit the gallery website at gallerycurious.com. We have also launched a Patreon campaign to help support a better pay rate for our authors. Every dollar helps, and I promise to say as little about that as possible. That is all for this time. Do visit us again next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 International Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like what we're doing or feel the need to read us the Riot Act, drop us a message on Facebook or Twitter or write to us at CuriousGallery at gmail.com. Mr. Underby gives excellent relationship advice. Tonight's story music was by Brett Van Donzel and Kevin McLeod. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. <laughs>